The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's objectives, financial situation, or needs. Listeners should consider obtaining independent advice before making any financial decisions. Hi, this is Barry Fitzgerald, Garen Perro columnist for Stockhead. Welcome to another edition of the Explorers podcast. We're doing something a bit different today by having a chat with Hedley Widop, an investment manager for the Melbourne-based and ASX-listed Lion Selection. Lion Selection is a specialist fund focused on the junior mining and exploration sector. Its code is LSX, or Lima Sierra X-Ray, and it's trading at 47 cents. Now we know that despite there being more than 650 active juniors out there across all sorts of commodities and thematics, they get very little if any attention from the mainstream market. That's despite an appetite from many investors for information and guidance because as we know, everyone loves to have a 10 bagger in their portfolio while at the same time, they don't want to be losing money either. Thankfully, Headley, a geologist by training who joined Lion Selection as an analyst in 2007, is a recognised expert in the sector and is here today to give us his thoughts on where the junior space is at, what the big themes to look out for in 2020 will be, and how best to go about finding the next hot stock or sector out there. Headley will also be sharing his thoughts in the keynote address at Resource Rising Stars One Day Conference coming up in Sydney on December 3, where investors can hear presentations from 20 or so juniors with a story to tell. And with that, I'm going to welcome Headley to the podcast. Hi, Headley, and thanks for your time today. Hi, Barry. Thanks very much for having me. Great to be talking to you and nice to be described as something different as well. I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> now, thanks for that, Headley. Now, Sentiment uh, obviously ebbs and flows in the junior space uh, more dramatically than in most other sectors of the market. Can you explain why sentiment is important to the junior sector and where you see it currently and what that might mean for the year ahead? Yeah, sure. Look, I think uh, for, a, for a sector like mining, sentiment is absolutely crucial uh, to understand because it, it, this is what pushes money in and out of the sector. And the junior space of any industry, but mining in particular, um, is going to suffer if sentiment isn't pointed exactly in the right direction. Uh, and to give you an example, what do I mean by sentiment? Um, it, it's how do people feel about putting money into the mining space? And with re- reference to the juniors, how do they feel about buying something as risky as an exploration company. And I think the two end members are in circa 2011 and circa 2007 or 8, everybody in the world thought there was a great idea to be buying mining stocks. And that applied to BHP right down to the smallest exploration junior company. Um, Right at the moment, uh, we're not far from the other end member, which was 2015, where even companies like BHP were regarded as being financially risky by many investors around the world. Um, and, and when BHP is regarded as risky, um, you've got two chances of being able to raise money and, and find new shareholders as a, an exploration company or a development company right at the bottom end of the market cap uh, chain. So it's very important uh, for an investor in the space to be to be understanding whether sentiment is pointed in their direction or not. Right. So where do you think we're at at the moment? So Lion Selection is fi- uh, famous for its clock uh, can you talk a bit about that, that and where it's pointing at the moment? 
Okay, so the, the lion clock uh, is a concept which has existed for uh, several decades now, and it's a cartoon that depicts the evolution of sentiment through any typical mining cycle, um, which is how do, how do investors feel about money coming into the, uh, the mining market um, or not. And let's start from the point where uh, money floods out, there's a mining bust, and what happens after that? Uh, when a mining bust occurs, something has tripped off investors to think that miners are expensive and irresponsible. And in uh, in 2011 and 12, this started to happen, where uh, miners' costs have crept up very high. Commodity prices either levelled or started to fall, which exposed uh, the level of cost that there was in the sector. And the sector then had to start stripping costs out. As that process was taking place, the whole investment market became very negative on miners. And this continued for some years. So take us through to 2015. Some of the larger companies, BHP and Rio Tinto, had been maintaining what they called progressive dividend policies, which meant that every year they would pay out a little bit larger dividend and would borrow money if they had to in order to uh, perpetuate that. That had become something which was uh, inflaming investors. They were regarding BHP and Rio as being financially irresponsible as a result, even though at that time their cash flow was actually strengthening and, and could probably sustain those policies. Notwithstanding, in 2016, they, they changed their policy to enable them to pay out dividends according to a, uh, a revenue or, or profit formula. Um, and once that worry was taken away from the investment market, they could all of a sudden see the miners for uh, being cheap, which is what they were at the time. And consequently, BHP and Rio have, have re-rated between two and three times since then. Um, over time, investors become uh, more and more confident to invest in the site in the sector. Uh, they recycle some profits that they might have made off of bigger companies like BHP and Rio, and then see some success in other companies. Um, I think a great example in Australia is the Northern Stars and the Evolutions, which took advantage of uh, depressed uh, mining conditions to buy assets cheaply from some bigger companies who are trying to fix their balance sheets and have consequently had great equity success in the Australian market. That's driven uh, a recovery in the exploration trends. We've seen three or four years now of increasing exploration spend in Australia, which is mimicked globally, but uh, I think we're probably leading the curve there and starting to see some interest come into um, the juniors. And I, and I don't mean by that that every, um, every boat is being lifted by a rising tide. It's much more that um, the junior companies, uh, there are select ones which are being able to raise money uh, to pursue their endeavours. Probably not so much for project development, that is still very difficult, but if they want to buy an asset which is operating or if they want to explore something exciting, that's where they can raise the money. So I think, Barry, we're, we're probably halfway between the bust uh, ending and, uh, and this boom coming to its absolute top. But I see three or four years, or at least probably five years or more, of uh, very happy investing conditions between now and then. Right. So we've well and truly moved beyond the green, green shoots phase. Well, this answer. I agree. Yes, we have. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Now, having said that, there has been some distractions for risk money, particularly from uh, cannabis and technology investments. Do you see them uh, continuing to distract or take money away from the uh, exploration sector? I do. Um, and I think what we're seeing at the moment is possibly also well explained by a historical example. So, uh, if listeners turn their minds back to circa 1998 uh, through to about 2001 or two, I think most people are familiar with what was called the dot-com bubble. Um, and at that point, it was pretty simple. 
There'd been an enormous mining market crash in 1997. That was accompanied by the East Asian currency crisis. And there was a lot of risk aversion in the world. Technology, uh, particularly internet technologies, were a new thing. And I don't think that risk was all that well understood towards them, but particularly with, um, uh, with money looking for a place to uh, invest to try and gain multiples, um, but not wanting to take the same risks it had been doing in things like mining, it was ripe for the picking. So money flowed into new internet-based companies and achieved some pretty amazing valuations considering that they didn't even really have a, a revenue model worked out in many cases, let alone a profitability model. Um, and then that all came to an end. When you overlay uh, the patterns of um, capital raisings in mining, uh, exploration expenditure in mining with what was going on in the dot-com uh, period, you can almost see that investors were ignoring and, and just not taking any part at all in uh, the smaller end of mining uh, capital raisings and, and, and which enables exploration, etc. Uh, until that dot-com boom had really stopped and the bubble had burst, and, and you can almost see the money flowing from one place to another. If you look at the companies which were able to IPO in the tech space, and after that not being able to do that, uh, being able to IPO in the exploration and mining space, and I see a similar thing happening now. Marijuana in North America is a slightly more constrained phenomenon. Uh, and technology is probably playing out more in the private uh, than, than listed space. But nevertheless, we've seen many, many listed analogies of both and, and several in Australia as well. Um, those businesses are often uh, trading on very rich earnings multiples if they have any earnings. Uh, and I, I suppose the simplest analogy is if you go to raise money in North America at the moment and you say, I've got a new uh, project which is related to producing medicinal marijuana, it's a lot easier to raise money than it is to raise money to explore for anything. Gold, lithium, coal, uranium, uh, it doesn't matter how on or off the nose it is, uh, that's just easier to raise money. Now, I don't think that uh, the marijuana theme is all that far from uh, having to prove how it can make money and how big the market for medicinal and legal marijuana actually is. These things always come to an end, um, and whether or not there's a there's a, a long-term industry in medicinal marijuana is not really what I'm talking about. It's more how easily can they capture new money in the market and demonstrate the valuations uh, which they're trading on are reasonable compared to earnings, and I think that's what we're now getting close to. So I see that theme coming to an end and money coming back to the junior end of mining pretty soon. Mm. I remember the uh, dot-com bubble very well. I was working at The Age at the time as the mining editor, and was called in by the editor one day and said, Fitz, you need to reinvent yourself. The uh, You're covering a dinosaur industry. You need to get on board this internet-related uh, boom. Um, and sure enough, what, a year or two later, we had that 10-year China boom. That, uh, That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, there were many, many little miners that tried to reinvent themselves as dot-com companies, and they saw a run in their share price at the time. And then, you know, of, of however many of them converted themselves, I would say 95% converted back to exploration when the versatile entrepreneurs that ran them realised that, uh, you know, it was just a flash in the pan and they were going back to exploring again. So um, it's funny how things go round and around. Mm. Now, just stripping it back a bit for investors, what are the four or five things investors should be comfortable with before considering investing in a junior stock of any flavour, given we are talking about risk money? Yeah. Uh, look, there's there's a few things which we look for here which are reasonably critical to an investment case uh, for us. And there's one or two which I would add on top of that for a, let's call it a retail style investor who's doing their own homework. The first one for me is um, we look at the people. Are they capable of delivering? Are they capable of raising money? 
um, there's then an interface with uh, with the project, um, and the risks around a project I think are very important to understand. You can you can always perceive upside, and that is exactly what's being sold to you when you get a pitch. But uh, it's the risks which are very important to cover off. That comes down to the size and shape of the project, where it is in the world and what the commodity is, which they're hoping to extract and sell. Um, and there are all sorts of risks which you can assess along the way, but what you want to be able to convince yourself of is that if they can show that there is a sizable enough inventory of a product which is close enough to the surface and everything else to be extracted, can you sell it? Um, and if you can sell it, what price do you think you'll get for it? Those things will come through in most presentations, and by the time you've judged those and the people, uh, you, you want to understand the upside scenario. So if a stock is trading at a $100 million and you think that their project could be worth 50 to $100 million, then I think that tells you that the return profile is probably not quite what you should be after uh, when, you, when you're risking everything on a, a project which isn't in production. But if you're seeing that they've got a market capitalization of, say, 10, and you think they've got a valuation of that project in excess of 100 at some stage, that's the kind of uh, playoff that you're looking for there. Now, I guess the, um, the 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 additional consideration which I'd put on top of people risks and valuation uh, is their funding, uh, and quite a lot of these small companies have something very much in common, which is that they have no money and find it very very difficult to raise the money. Mm-hmm. And the way that they can unlock that is either by being able to really clarify their story for the market, and a lot of investors are going to see these stories at conferences and things, so it's a good a good opportunity to compare companies side by side. Um, but it comes down to the people and how readily can they raise money in order to do the things that they need to do. Um, and you can see from their track record uh, of raising money and uh, and spending money um, as to how well they've been able to put money that they've raised in the past to work and also how effective they've been in able to be, find money to fund themselves um, in their endeavours. There are a few companies which are new to a listing, which it might be a bit harder to judge, but generally speaking, you can easily access records of, uh, of capital raisings by going back through their news flow. And if you can satisfy them yourself, which they can raise money, then you should feel a little bit more comfortable about them being able to fund themselves and not just relying on you as that one investor going in. Because I think with a junior company, um, one of the worst outcomes you can have is that they have an interesting project, but they arrive at a point where they can't raise any money. And from that point onwards, um, the quality of the project starts to be less important and where the money is going to come from next becomes of utmost importance because whoever puts the next money in and at what valuation might determine what the return is for every other shareholder who um, who is involved. Yeah. Now, an often overlooked aspect of uh, investing in the junior sector is uh, commodity, commodity risk, i.e. Um, is it difficult to produce? Um, is it easy to sell? Uh, do you guys scale, have a scale from say, gold through to, to the other commodities to act as a, some sort of screen before investing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and it, without being overly prescriptive about it, I think you can put things in a general order. Um, gold is by far the easiest of the mineral commodities, and that's because it's, it's quite easy to process. Uh, now, some gold metallurgists would dispute that, but at the end of the day, it's, it's a lot easier to separate gold as a, in its pure form than anything else, even base metals, which, you know, form a large market for their concentrates generally. Remember, you're only selling concentrates of those metals and not the, the finished product. Uh, so, Barry, if you and I wanted to be gold miners, I think we could we could go out with a shovel and a pan and we might not make much, but we'd be gold miners. Uh, and if we wanted to sell our product, you, you could sell it in the street uh, if you wanted to. In fact, I've been to conferences where there are people buying gold 
at the conference. I mean, that's that's how easy it is. Um, you go up the difficulty scale a little bit into base metals where you're selling concentrates which have a, a sort of product quality consideration to them um, as to how much of the metal you can get into the concentrate alongside other things. There are penalty elements. Um, you need to be able to transport that as well. Uh, you move into the bulks uh, where you need a train set, you need a port uh, often in order to be able to transport things like coal and iron ore to their eventual customers. And in order to do that, you also need comfort that when that enormous shipment arrives at the other end, you will be paid for it. So you need financial interme intermediaries to um, to help with that. Um, and then you start to get into some of the really specky stuff. Uh, platinum can be difficult uh, depending on its metallurgy and its chemistry. Um, things like rare earths uh, we know are hard to process sometimes, um, but you also end up with a basket of maybe five to ten uh, different products which all are subject to market risk and uh, not one of them generally um, provides 100% of the revenue for a project. So there's risk around that. And eventually you end up in things like diamonds, which are lovely to own if you can find a, uh, a nice diamond mine. They're very, very rare and uh, some of the characters that circulate in the diamond market um, can be difficult to deal with to say the least. So th that's our rough continuum of risk uh, according to um, the commodity. Mm. Now you mentioned earlier, Headley, that expiration expenditure was on the rise. So I was just wondering what you thought, given juniors rely on making discoveries to garner investor attention, what do you make of the sector's track record of late when it comes to discoveries? Yeah, the, the sector as a whole um, has impressed me in the last, let's say, two or three years. Uh, and I've made no secret of the fact uh, in various presentations that I've ever made that I actually think that some of the larger companies have, you know, far larger ground positions um, than are justified by how much money and effort they've spent on um, exploration over the last period of time. Now, it's probably unfair to judge them over the last eight to 10 years because there's been periods there where no one wanted to spend money. And the juniors have been constrained by how much they could raise. But having said that, uh, we've seen the discovery of Winu in uh, northwestern Australia by, by Rio Tinto. Um, it's very early to call that one in terms of uh, what it is and what it means, but it, it's very impressive. Uh, I think it's regionally extensive and uh, there's obviously a lot of metal there. We need to see what sorts of concentrations it's in um, before we can determine what sort of a project it might become. But good on Rio for uh, having the conviction to spend the money and make that discovery and, and now pursue it. We've also seen BHP make a discovery, uh, maybe not quite as regionally extensive, and it is deep uh, in South Australia. Uh, so, but, but the point is two discoveries from two of the big major companies uh, within a very short period of time uh, and at the start of the cycle. And, and that gets people interested, but you don't get much exploration leverage upside in the share price of BHP or Rio for, for either of those discoveries. Um, we've seen a possible discovery take place in Victoria, uh, Staveley Minerals. has certainly seen a great share price uh, reaction to putting out some very high-grade copper, plus or minus nickel and a few other things. Uh, intersections from their project uh, in Western Victoria. And we've, we all hope that turns into a, a great discovery because I think that'd be wonderful for the state and for the industry. Um, and in the case of a company like Staveley, uh, these things are few and far between when they occur. But um, first of all, they've been able to raise the money. Secondly, they've made a conviction call on uh, really sticking to this project. But third, when a discovery takes place, it makes it a lot easier for everybody around them to be able to raise money as well because discoveries excite people um, and I think uh, Staveley here could be well, I've, I've heard people um, describe this as being a little bit like being a fire engine uh, going through New York City which you know quite thick traffic 
uh, when a fire engine needs to get through, traffic will let it through, but then people jump in behind it to follow it through the traffic. And I, I think that um, you will probably see as Staveley experiences success, there will be people wanting to look for similar things um, who hop on the back of that that trend in the market and say, we're, we're looking for another one a bit like that. And we've seen that in exploration for gold in Victoria as well, Barry. I mean, the success of um, Kirkland Lake at Fosterville uh, has provoked a whole band of juniors who are looking for gold in Victoria. As yet, we haven't seen a discovery off the back of that excitement, um, but I think uh, we're seeing some very encouraging signs there. And given the money is being raised, my outlook for exploration is, is pretty rosy because you need to spend the money to make a discovery. Um, it's a risk thing, so you need to roll the dice and do it. But uh, the more money that's being spent and the better science that's contributed, the more chance there is of discoveries. Mm. Okay, Hedley, you've given us a, a great rundown on the, the junior space and uh, lots of uh, reasons there for optimism in the years ahead. So uh, thanks for your time today and uh, we'll, like everyone, be watching the junior space with uh, intense interest in the coming years. Cheers, mate. Good on you, Barry. Nice to chat to you and I'm looking forward to the conference.